Well, it's a treat always to be with you, and I especially appreciate so much your good pastor. He's been a friend for a number of years, and uh, it's been a joy to be with him and uh, to enjoy Kara and Josiah, brother and sister. Man, God gave them these voices. I, I, I can only imagine what that home must be like as they sing all the time together. From time to time, we've enjoyed thoroughly their ministry to us this week. And Andy, we I always enjoy having my grandson come. I, I don't always get to hear him, so when I'm in the area, I like for him to come so I can hear him. And he always is free to do that for me, and I appreciate him so very much. Appreciate all the singing, the Tom and his ministry to us this week, and his dear mother, Miss Sister Young, and all her work on the instrument, and uh, it's been a real joy to be here. I must tell you, if I do use a big word, I remember sitting in old Dr. Blackstone's class one day, and he was way over our head, even an old archaeologist, he was teaching things I wasn't interested in, and I didn't understand the thing he was saying most of the time, and somebody raised their hand and said what I wanted to say, but didn't have the nerve enough to say, I don't, you, you're, you're over our heads, we don't know where you are. He said, well, just stretch your neck a little bit, and so I think sometimes it doesn't hurt us just to stretch our neck uh, to, you know, I think about we need to become familiar with biblical terms. I don't know why, why we're adverse to that. We have these crazy drug terms and medicines, and they have words that they don't even make sense, the vowels and the syllables and everything, but we find out what they mean. So if you can do that to a, a pill, you ought to be able to do that to the Word of God. Just thought I'd mention that. I don't know if that was good news or not, but uh, I, I can't uh, but speak and teach the things that I've seen and heard. This is my last opportunity to speak to you, and I, I'm going to read two verses, and then I want to take a few moments of personal privilege here. If you would like to stand with me just for a moment, you've been seated a while, and some of you are nodding, and I worry about that. So I'm going to keep my eye on you that are doing that, just so you know. But I want to read two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, this is not the full context, but I can tell you two verses, you could speak volumes from them. And I'll share with you out of these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 and 2. Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. What a statement. Father, thank you for what we have already received in our worship of you and your presence in our midst and the blessings that you have given us across these last few days and how we've enjoyed the fellowship with the saints and how we've enjoyed the ministry of song and the prayers of your people. And one more time, as you speak to us through your word, we want to receive it gladly. We want to receive it obediently. And we want to apply it to our hearts, not only through a mere experience, but the ethics of everyday living. And we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been trying to figure out across these nearly 46 years that I've been in evangelism, and the best I've been able to estimate, probably I have preached 
somewhere between 11,000 and 500 sermons. And I have to tell you, uh, in doing that, uh, it gives you a broad scope of God's word. And I constantly am developing, I told my wife not long ago, I said, I've been preparing sermons in my study that I'll never live long enough to preach. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I just keep doing it because I enjoy studying God's word. Well, I, and I thought as I read this passage, and I've been in here uh, for, for years in Paul's writings, and if you notice that statement in verse 2 where he says, and I want to emphasize this statement. He says, For I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I thought in my own mind, I, I don't know when I'm going to preach my last sermon. But I have thought that if I was going to preach and knew it was my last sermon, I believe this is the text that I would use. I've always felt this would be the text that I would use. And it certainly was a powerful text for Paul. In fact, it was the apostles' settled resolve. Now, I don't know why he said it this way. Let me just take a moment to tell you why I'm reading this passage. He had just come to Corinth from Athens. And if you remember, in Athens, they were scoffing him and mocking him, and they finally brought him to a place called Areopagus, which was Mars Hill, where the ancient courts of Athens or Greece would meet. And he brought to them this message of Christ and the resurrection that they did not believe, they did not accept. And he said uh, this, they had a monument, and they said the monument to the unknown God was the blackness that draped the earth while Jesus was hanging on the cross, and they did not have one of their idols of which to appease or God to which they were going to petition, so they made this idol to the unknown God. And Paul comes to them and he says, you don't know him, but I know him, and I've come to declare him unto you, and he declared the gospel message. There's about six major themes in the gospel message in Acts chapter 17 where he does this. Now, I'm saying that because when he got through preaching, some mocked and some of them uh, delayed and some believed, just a few believed. Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris with her, there was just a very few that believed. But I do think that Paul thought maybe he was doing, peeling more to their head than he was their heart. He was dealing with a bunch of philosophers and Epicureans and Stoics, and he was trying to convince them. And when he saw the result, I think he realized, man, I missed it. I don't know. That's my conjecture. But when he comes over here to the church of Corinth, notice what he says. Having just come from Athens, he said, brethren, I came to you, and I've come not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I'm determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Knowing Christ was Paul's greatest aspiration because Christ was his greatest inspiration. And when you study his life, you discover that his whole pursuit was that I may know him, Jesus Christ. Now the atheists, of course, will tell you that God is non-existent. The pantheist will tell you that God is non-personal. The agnostic will tell you that God is unknowable. But you as a Christian, and Christianity really rests on a double truth. Number one, that God has revealed himself in Christ. When you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. 
If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. He has revealed God through Christ. The second thing is, man is capacitated not only to receive that revelation, but also to receive the Christ that is being revealed. In other words, man is the only creature that has the capacity to know his creator and commune with his creator. No other creature can testify to that. Now, I also want to tell you, the Bible has nothing to say to those people who do not want to know him. I want to make that very clear. If you say, I'm not interested, preacher, I'm, I, you might just well leave because this Bible does not speak to you. You say, are there people like that? You read Romans chapter 1. It says there were those who did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And so God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Be very, very careful that you say, well, I know there may be some, I don't know if I can ever know you, but be very careful. You want to know him. There must be a pursuit of him. But if you notice, he was not only determined to know Christ, but he said, I want to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified. This statement is a statement that is a, a decisive statement. And if you read it carefully, it swells with a shout of assurance that I may know him and that I may know him crucified. Now, the message of the cross to Paul was not marginal. Everything in the 13 letters he writes in, the, in this New Testament, he centers on the cross. It's always central when you read it. For example, in the 17th and 18th verse of chapter 1, he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. And so all the way through, the cross is absolutely central. Now, there's one other thing I think we need to be made abreast of. We have romanticized the cross today. We have made it almost a good luck charm. We wear it around our necks on chains. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just telling you, this is what we do with it. We grace the edifices of our churches with it. We wreath it with flowers and put it on our tombstones. It's amazing to me how we've romanticized the cross, but the cross has no such meaning as that. The cross was the terrible instrument of death that the Romans used to destroy their most incorrigible criminals. And Jesus was the one subject to the cross. Cursed is he who dies on the tree. And I would remind you, we do not carry a crucifix. Jesus is not on the cross. He has long since risen from the cross. And so I will not carry around a crucifix in my life. Now, when he says to you, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, he is honing this message down to a fine point. You don't take a nail and drive it head first. You drive it point first. And what Paul is doing here, he's driving this nail point first in. There's two things now I want to hang in your mind, and I'll try to be quick to let you out when I'm done. <laughs> I want you to know, first of all, the indispensable person, Christ of the cross. But then I want you also to notice the indescribable passion, the cross of Christ. First watch with me or look with me, the indispensable person. In chapter 1, verse 21, it said, The world by wisdom knew not God. 
It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. By the way, preaching is the avenue God has chosen to reach a lost world. It's amazing to me how we want to do almost everything but bother with preaching. It's, inter it's interesting to me. We come for almost all kind of entertaining. And, and you know, I, I used to hear, and you've heard the statement, well, man, we had a great service, all singing and no preaching. That's a great service. I long for the time we say we had a great service, no singing, all preaching. No, you don't. I guess that's, uh, that's my problem, not yours. To Paul, preaching was a, a passion. It wasn't a profession. And the passion centered on the person of Jesus Christ. If you go over to Acts 17, it says he preached to them Jesus Christ and the resurrection. I mentioned to you the other night, I think the 13 uh, sermons following the resurrection of Christ was not emphasizing his death. They were emphasizing his triumphant resurrection. And this was one place he did it in Mars Hill, and those men did not like the resurrection. And they almost run him out of town on the rail. They said everywhere Paul went, he had either a revival or a riot. And they were about to have a riot, as they were just before he got to Athens, and he had to move on. When you read Paul's letters, he does not engage in a whole lot of religious verbiage that has no substance. He was not preaching, explaining the book of the month. He was expounding the book of the ages. This, the word of God. There's no substitute for this Bible. We have all kind of Bible helps. I'm afraid the Bible helps have become dominant over the Bible itself. Preach the word of God. Because he knew that the written word reveals to us the living word. Christ is the subject in this book. He's the source in this book. He's the substance in this book. He is the sum of all sacred scripture. From the time I met him, 1958, of which all those years previous, I never even read the Bible. From that moment on, this Bible has been my love letter from my God, from my Savior. And I keep it close to my heart and try to fill my mind with it, and it never has failed me. Preaching Christ crucified was to some, if you read it in verses 23 and 24, it was scandalous to the Jews. It was folly to the Gentiles. But he said again to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now I mentioned to you the indispensable Christ, the Christ of the cross. We've heard the expression, haven't we? The indispensable man. Uh, it insinuates that there were certain men of renown who possessed such knowledge, wisdom, and influence, and with their expertise, if it would ever be lost, the nation would suffer irreparable damage. We called those men indispensable men. In fact, there was a book written, Indispensable Men of the 20th Century. But the onward march of time where one great man after another goes down into the silence of the grave and everything continues on reveals to us no mortal man is indispensable. However, 2,000 years ago, a man of deep humility and modesty and a handful of devoted followers disclosed himself to those followers as the indispensable man. He's the indispensable God-man. In fact, with, when, uh, with authority, he would declare to them, hear the words, without me, you can do nothing. 
That's the indispensable man. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, men may make a great showing in church circles, and, and we may even receive all kind of accolades and applause and awards for all of our assemblies and conferences, but I want you to know without Christ, it will not advance the kingdom one iota. Those things are really foolishness. If I take you back to Paul's life previous, he, he was, of course, Saul. And before his, Paul's conversion, when he was Saul, he was a very religious man. And I don't mind telling you, he would put many Christians' religion to shame. His disciplines were tremendous. In fact, uh, with all of his education, he also had 2,400 years of Jewish heritage. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee with all the prestige and power that that carried. He zealously persecuted the church. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He persecuted the church. He touching the righteousness which is the law. It said he was blameless. But when you read it over in Philippians chapter 3, one day God brought this Pharisee down on the dust of Damascus. And if you remember, he revealed himself as the indispensable man. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Lord, who art thou? What wilt thou have me to do when this wicked Saul became the witness Paul? This murderer, for he murdered many, and Stephen notwithstanding, would ultimately become the martyr himself. And all of a sudden, Saul was transformed to Paul. And they led him into Damascus, for the light that shone upon him was so bright it blinded him, and some days later, Ananias was led into Damascus, laid hands on Saul, who now was Paul, and he received his sight, and he went into the Arabian desert for three years to prepare for his ministry. Paul, keep in mind of all of his position in the Judaizer religion, all of a sudden he said, all my achievements, all my accomplishments, all my accolades, all the degrees, whatever you want to put behind my name, all of my achievements, I put on the debit side of the ledger, and I count it all but refuse that I may know Christ, this indispensable man. Later, you remember, we find him in the prison of Philippi, and the body was confined in the walls of stone, and his mind and his spirit and his influence was as free as if he were outside the prison. But nevertheless, he writes to his beloved church, the church of Philippi, the Philippian people. He says these words, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And by the way, thereafter, all that he suffered were stepping stones to a greater knowledge of Christ until he came in the first chapter of the Philippian letter, said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm willing to stay here for your sake, but it's going to be gain for me to get out of here. And death did not, he did not fear death. He was going to know God in a greater measure than he did while he was living. Now, I want you to note those two statements. The infinite distance between when the indispensable man, Jesus, says, without me you can do nothing. And here Philippians Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The infinite distance between nothing and all things can be bridged only by this indispensable man, 
called Jesus. That's the Christ of the cross. But I want you to note more, more carefully what this has to do with you and me. Because it's the indescribable passion which we call the cross of Christ. Hebrews says, so Christ, Jesus, also. Now that in, in addition to saving us from our sins, also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. The purpose of his passion, and you know, we talk about that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is the Passion Week. I can tell you everything Jesus did that's recorded in the Bible that he did, beginning walk, uh, coming down the, the road in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday until finally he rose from the tomb on that next Sunday. I can tell you everything he did that is recorded. And I can tell you there's one day where it's not recorded that he did anything. That's on Wednesday. But you know the, you know the story, how I met with all the, those who tried to defy him and, and those who tried to trip him up and... And Monday, Thursday, you remember when out in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know when he finally was crucified on Friday and he was laid in the tomb and he was silent in that tomb the next day and then, of course, the great day of the resurrection. I'm saying that because we call that Passion Week. You, I guess there's a movie. I don't go to movies, but there's a movie, uh, something about passion. Well, somebody knows it. The passion of Christ. The word passion here speaks of his death. Crucifixion. We use the word too, you know, we, he's pa very passionate. That means he's very driven or whatever. But this word passion here means the cross and the death of Christ. And it was the purpose of his passion or his death and resurrection was to purify his people. We sing about and we preach a lot and testify to this word Calvary. Uh, Calvary is in the King James Version one time. All the times we speak of it, it's only recorded one time in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. However, when we come, they said when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Now, it is recorded three other times, but the three other times it's recorded or translated skull. Calvary in the Latin means skull. Why does it mean skull? Well, you know. Golgotha was a place carved out on the place of Mother Earth in the wrinkling hands of time in the shape of a skull. And it was there, of course, that Jesus was crucified. And I must say to you, he transformed the place of the skull into the place of salvation. That is a whole lot more delightful and more drawing than a skull. The old symbol for Christianity was a fish. Some use it yet today. You see it on the back of automobiles. I've often wondered why did they use the fish as a symbol. I don't know whether it was because the leading apostle, Peter, was a fisherman. I don't know if it's because Jesus called up a fish from the deep and took the corn out of his mouth to pay his taxes. I don't know if it's because he fed the thousands with the fish and the bread. I don't know. But that's not the symbol today. The symbol of Christianity today is the cross. And it was there that he replaced the criminal's guilt with the Christian's glory through the cross and the death, the passion of Christ. Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed unto man once to die. But do you know that Jesus reversed cause and effect here? It's appointed unto man once to die. 
I say that because uh, Jesus did not die because he was a man. Rather, he became a man so he could die. Different than you and I. We're men and women. It's appointed unto us once to die. Jesus chose to be a man in order that he could die. Outside the gates of Jerusalem, he hung between a criminal and a convert. And I've often thought about it with all the noise, with all the shouting. Those who once were saying Hosanna to him, now were saying crucify him, jeering him, mocking him, yelling at him. They had beaten him. They had mistreated him. When he thirsted, they gave him vinegar. But in all of the din, the noise, the pain that he was suffering on the cross, he heard the cry of the one on the cross. And he said to him, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. I can tell you something. This world cannot drown his voice out or drown his ear out. No matter all the voices that's shouting for you, Jesus hears you. Make no mistake about it. And consequently, there on the mountain, all the forces of hell and earth were marshaled together in mortal conflict, but the outcome of the battle was never in question. It was there that he paid full measure the price exacted for our redemption. His blood was the purifying agent through which the deep springs of man's attitude and behavior can be made clean. The purpose of the church, let me say it slowly, carefully, so that I use words, you understand me. The purpose of the church depends on the purity of the church. The purity of the church is that experience that is subsequent to being born again where the cross becomes a reality to you and me. This cross, I must say, objectively, Jesus died for us. We don't mind that. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I wasn't there. But I can tell you subjectively, we must be crucified with him. Jesus died for me, but that's only effective if I'm willing to be crucified with him. Sometimes when we romanticize the cross, like I mentioned earlier, we do great damage to the cross. We great grow, give great damage to the purpose of his teaching. Richard Taylor says we must not romanticize it we must internalize it. In other words, there must be a cross within me. We, there's a song written, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand because we use this phrase, well, that's just my cross to bear. Can I tell you, if you're talking about your lumbago or if you're talking about your hardships or if you're talking about some illness, that's not your cross. If that's true, the world is bearing their cross too. Because when it comes to the cross, only a believer can bear it. In this context, the world does not. Only the child of God can bear the cross and they bear it not as a conscript, not as a draftee. They bear it voluntarily. And so it's not only an historical event. 
and I have studied the history, as many of you have studied the history of the crucifixion, I could spend all of my time describing things that happened on that very day of his death. We call Good Friday, and only because of the good Easter morning, it was the most tragic Friday that ever occurred in the human race. But Easter came, thank God. But I can tell you, it's more than a historical event. It must become a heart experience. 1958, when God saved me, I was as ignorant as a person could ever be. I'm just thankful that uh, God can reach someone that was as far away and as low and down and out as I was. But I can tell you also, it wasn't only four weeks after that I knew there was something deeper down and further back. That I had a depraved heart that needed to be cleansed. And that I had something within me that while it was now subdued, it was not destroyed. It's called the carnal mind. And I had enough sense to know that it not only incites me to do evil, it puts within me a desire to do evil. And I came to God and he cleansed my heart in the sanctifying work of his grace, which was the very passion of the cross. And it's the cross not only that we experience in a moment, but it's one that we daily, in the ethics of our lives, pick up and follow him. Three different times, he says in the Gospels, except this, you can't be my disciples. Except you bear the cross, you can't be my disciples. If it's that demanding, I think it's important we understand how important it is. There was a great Englishman by the name of Thomas Cook. He has a lot of writings, and I have gleaned a lot from him. But he writes his own testimony. Listen to what he said. Thomas Cook said, I had a clear and satisfying conversion when he was born again. But he said, it wasn't long that God revealed to me an internal opposition, and it's centered in one point. And the one point is a three-letter word, E-G-O, ego. And he said, selfishness was evident. He further stated, I once prayed to be saved from hell, but the prayer to be saved from myself was immeasurably more fervent. For he said, I first feared the penalty of my sins that condemned me, but he said, later I feared the tyranny of a sinful self that mastered me. We must have only the master. Self cannot be sinner. Self is not to have its way. And the cross of Calvary provides a basis of reconciliation for the sinner, but also for the cleansing work by the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the work of sanctification. Calvary opened the way to Pentecost, by the way, providing the glorified Savior who sent the Holy Spirit. And you, if you read Acts chapter 1 and 2, you remember Jesus, before he was crucified, told his disciples to wait in the city of Jerusalem after this was all over, after he was crucified. And he said, even after he rose from the dead, tarry in the city of Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, which saith me, you've heard of me. Saith thee, you've heard of me. He said, John, John the Baptist, truly baptized with water. But you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And folks, I don't understand. I just don't understand how we can confuse the two. Certainly you understand one had to be born to be physically water baptized. 
one has to be born again, be able to experience the spiritual baptism. It's a second and subsequent work of grace. And Jesus ascended to the Father, and 40 days later, following the, the 11 appearances, 50 days since the crucifixion, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world. And he said, when he's come, when he's come, he'll not speak of himself, he'll take the things of me and show them to you. And on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, you can read it when you go home, cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them, and they were all filled. They were his disciples. They had the pronouncement of his disciples by Jesus himself. But I must tell you, there was something lacking. And as before Pentecost, they were often bigoted, vindictive, they were ambitious, they were cowardly. You remember Peter denied him and then was converted and there he was in the upper room on that day of Pentecost. Remember James and John, they wanted the special place. They were the, they were the religious politicians, you know. They wanted to be the special place on the throne. The mother wanted them to be there too. And there was a doubting Thomas and all kind of stuff was going on in this church. And I have to tell you, there's a whole lot of that kind of stuff going on in the, in the church today. But there's a cure for that. Because when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were cleansed to the deep center of their lives and Christ being enthroned, and his will became their consuming passion. His will, not my will. Dr. Paul Reese, remember he, what was the statement, I'm determined not to know anything among you save Christ and him crucified? Dr. Paul Reese said to know Christ crucified is to be crucified with Christ. If you ever know Christ crucified, like the apostle, we have to go to the cross. Not, inter not romanticize it, internalize it, and be crucified with him. That's why he said in Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Oh, he said, not I live anymore. Not me, the ego, but Christ lives. And he said, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. No, no, he goes. But he had to die to his own rights to himself. I don't mind telling you this, number one, is not easy. And there's a lot of people that shirk from this. I don't mind Jesus saved me. I don't mind giving me a fire escape and going to hell make me a child of his in heaven, but I'm not sure I want to go all the way. So remember the cross not only stood for a shameful death, it also, if I can say it, brings to you and me a spiritual deliverance. And it will result in a successful dynamics. Because after the day of Pentecost, those disciples did what was never done before. They turned their whole world upside down. And by the way, we're here today because they were faithful back then. Consequently, Paul knew that Christ and him crucified is the only saving gospel for the sin-stained humanity. And so he determined not to marginalize it. Don't put this on, you know, we talk holiness. Well, you know, put it peripheral. Yeah, I got to be careful. We don't mind talking about it as a you know possibility or an approximation, 
No, this is the very central purpose of his death and resurrection. And he did not marginalize it, and it was the central truth of the gospel. That's why, and I, I guess I better quit, but that's why he said in Galatians, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the world is crucified unto me, and I am crucified unto the world. A dual crucifixion. Paul knew, and we know, don't we? As long as big I, the big ego, is on the throne, God will never be glorified. Let me die, lest I die. Only let me see your face. If you read John 12, he says you must die. He says if you don't die, you will die. But if you will die, you won't die. <laughs> you read it for yourself. I, I'm not going to go any further. I'm just telling you. There's a death to pursue. Not a physical death. It's a death to your own selfishness. Your own self-centeredness. That asserts its own will. That is offended every time somebody says something ill against it. Or uh, envious. Spiteful. Let me die. Lest I die. If I preach this as my last sermon, I hope I can preach it better than I've ever preached it before. But I'm preaching it at my last service here. And I wonder if you could stand with me and bow your heads.